0: all right all right here we go greetings renegade files agent and welcome back to renegade files your underground connection to paranormal tales unsolved mysteries and covert culture i'm your host lex gordon hacking into the matrix from the jungle villa outpost deep in the uncharted tropics This is Renegade Files episode 29, Simulacra and Simulation. What is the Matrix? This episode is being posted on the pagan holiday of Mabon, which is also the autumn equinox, and so one of two days in the year when the hours of daylight and the hours of darkness are equal this is september 21st 2022 and it is not only Mabon and the equinox it is also exactly one year to the day since we started renegade files as such this episode is the last episode in season one thank you so much for being a part of our first year Your listening and liking the show and all of the wonderful feedback, encouragement, and positive input from so many of the fans I've met in person have truly made me grateful to be a part of the community that has grown up around Renegade Files. Thank you to our Renegade Files agents on Patreon and to everyone who has rated the show on Spotify, reviewed it on Apple, shared it with their friends, bought shirts and hats and other things from our merchandise shop and generally supported Renegade Files as we have grown and moved through our first year. And rest assured, Season 2 is going to rock. I've been through a lot at the end of this past season, and even though I had some setbacks, with your help and encouragement, I pressed on. We hit a few bumps, but overall I am thrilled with what Renegade Files has become, and I can't wait to push on with you by my side into the future. In Season 2, you can look for some co-hosted shows when I invite a few characters to the Jungle Villa Outpost so we can dive deep together into some of the stories of paranormal events, extraterrestrial shenanigans, and underground culture. Renegade Files is just getting started. This episode is a big one. It's long, and it's crazy deep we will get into some of the most complex but interesting ideas ever put forth about the world we live in. In this episode, we will explore the depths of Jean Baudrillard's 1981 philosophical treatise Simulacra and Simulation. In broad terms, this book examines the relationship between reality and the symbols within culture, media, and society. At this point, I would normally give you a summary of what the author concludes, but in this case, there really is none. This lack of a clear-cut, assertive conclusion is but one of many things that make Baudrillard not just hard to pin down, but cause him and his work to be maligned, misunderstood, and often shunned by many in philosophy and cultural observation. But this isn't to say that his work is wishy-washy or inconclusive overall. In many ways, he is like the wizard who will tell you both yes and no. In his book Simulacra and Simulation, Baudrillard contends that our current society has replaced all reality with symbols and signs, and that the symbology has come to occupy a more important place in our minds than the reality it symbolizes. In this way, Baudrillard asserts that our modern society is living in a simulation of reality. Now caution, this is not the computer-generated dream world of much conspiracy lore speculation, but actually something far more mind-bending. And mainly mind-bending because this is real. Baudrillard's simulation is not so clearly separated from the world of reality. To him, these worlds have imploded upon one another, and the result is, there is no reality to be separate from the simulation. It is the experience of reality framed by infinite symbolism that is the simulation. But not just symbolism that refers back to the real, but symbolism that has progressed to such a level of saturation that it now only ever refers back to yet another symbol. And that symbol simulates a symbol, ad infinitum. And this is merely the thinnest tip of the iceberg Baudrillard has constructed in his much-analyzed, argued-over, and wholly misrepresented text Simulacra and Simulation. This episode took a long time to create simply because the content of the subject is so dense. Going through it had me stopping and going outside just to make sure the trees and the sky were still there on many occasions. I'm happy to report that they are. And along the way, I discovered something about the late Jean Baudrillard. He was also happy the skies and the trees are still there. He is often categorized as cynical and apathetic, but I feel like these are projections. Baudrillard, it seems to me, simply wanted people to resist a world that reduces everything to the same thing. It seems that he loved diversity, nature, and the experiences of living as much or more than anyone. This is a deep episode that delves into one of the most complex and alarming subjects in the covert culture world. There is no quick glancing and getting the theories within it, but that's what makes digging through it so fun. It's a good thing. It's a good thing to reassess the way we collectively look at things sometimes, and in the end, that's all Baudrillard is doing. Come with me, and together we will explore the book that Neo hollowed out to hide his illicit software within in the first Matrix movie. We will learn why the Wachowskis chose this text to make such a brief but symbolic statement. We will glimpse here and there into the symbolism in the Matrix movies, but only to give us some perspective on this subject. This is not an episode about those movies specifically. This is an exploration of the simulation theory presented in Jean Baudrillard's controversial text. Going through it compels us to ask the unaskable question, what is the Matrix? Heavy Spoiler Alerts for The Matrix Films The popular film series The Matrix tells us a story of a dystopian future where machines have taken over life on Earth and grow humans as a crop where the growing humans are kept in a coma-like state unbeknownst to them and their bodies generate heat and electricity which is then used to power the machine world. The humans in this suspended life will only grow and thrive physically and thus provide the machines with power if they believe they are living a normal life. So, to facilitate their physical growth, those humans being cultivated by the machines are plugged into a computer-simulated reality wherein they can live life if only mentally, but happily ever after. And the machines can get their electricity and this simulated reality in the movies is called the matrix the wachowskis who made the matrix films were influenced by jean baudrillard's simulacra and simulation and the book was required reading for the actors and maybe some others working on the movies after going through it myself i really wonder how many of them actually read it at all I bet Lawrence Fishburne did. Either way, the book was a big part of the ideas we see conveyed in The Matrix movies and much has been made about the claim that Baudrillard himself did not like these movies. I'm not convinced however that this is fully true. What Baudrillard said of The Matrix, and this was when he was speaking only of the first movie in the trilogy, was that The Matrix is exactly the kind of movie that The Matrix would make. He said that the film fell short because it drew such a hard distinction between the computer-generated simulation of the Matrix and the physical desert of the real of Zion, the last human city. He felt it would be much more interesting to see the point where these worlds meet and remember that his critique was based on the first movie. When we get to the end of the third movie, and at a few places along the way, we do see this convergence point, and it does round out the films. In the first Matrix movie, we see Neo asleep at his computer with headphones on. That song he's listening to, by the way, is Dissolved Girl by Massive Attack, and it's great. Some of those lyrics are, I think I kind of lost myself again. And it feels like I've been, I've been here before. You are not my savior, but I still don't go. So from the outset, we see that the Wachowskis have layered their movie with symbolism, even to the point of a song playing inside headphones that we barely hear at all. Then Neo wakes to his computer being hacked by Trinity, and she instigates him to follow the White Rabbit, more symbolism, A fiction story referring to another fiction story and we start to get the notion of endless simulation even if subliminally. Then the guys buying whatever bootleg software Neo is selling knock on the door and he sells them a computer disk, we never find out what it is. The guy at the door is with a girl named DuJour so instead of Soup DuJour or Soup of the Day this is the Girl DuJour or the Girl of the Day clever Neo cautions the guy by saying if you get caught using that and then the guy finishes his sentence by saying I know I know you don't exist which ironically is the literal truth because this version of Neo is the mental projection of his digital self and we are at that point in the film within the matrix those people at his door with whom he goes to the nightclub are what we would call blue pills so people who know there is a matrix but live wholeheartedly within it, rather than be rescued into the grimy world of Zion to fight the machines in the real world. This is never explained overtly in the movies, but the parallel is someone who recognizes the falsehoods of modern materialist and corporate media culture, but thrives within it anyway, and the symbolism and the referentials in this movie never stop piling up. As for the movie, that's as deep as we'll get into it at this point. We might refer to it here and there along the way. It's just a stepping stone as we begin to move into the world Baudrillard is describing in Simulacra and Simulation. Simulacra and Simulation, as a footnote, is only one of Baudrillard's books and he wrote many other essays and texts. This book has become a popular one in part due to the Matrix movies. In fact, seeing the book as the computer disk safe Neo has made is the way I found out about Baudrillard. And here we have another Matrix movie observation. Neo has made a hollowed out book safe from the book Simulacra and Simulation so in the movie the book in his hand isn't really a book it's a simulation of a book that is actually a safe or a hiding place it is literally the hollow shell of a book a simulated book carved into a book about simulations this leads us into Baudrillard's text perfectly this gets deep so just come with me and don't worry we will have fun going through it all in the end We will still have trees and real friends and air to breathe. Maybe. Simulacra and Simulation A simulacrum is a representation of a person or a thing. It was originally used to refer to statues but grew to encompass representations of other objects. Baudrillard opens this book with a quote from the Old Testament of the Bible in Ecclesiastes, which is, quote, The simulacrum is never that which conceals the truth. It is the truth which conceals that there is none. The simulacrum is true. This quote holds a summary of Baudrillard's theory in the phrase, It is the truth that conceals that there is none. So with this quote from the Bible, Baudrillard tells us that the simulation or symbol does not stand in for the thing it represents, but that the thing it represents does not exist and the symbol is the only reality. This may or may not be true and with this he invites us to endure his text to find out. There's only one catch here this quote doesn't appear in Ecclesiastes or anywhere else in the Old Testament. It's fake. It's a symbol that is not real. People who ridicule or criticize Baudrillard for mistakenly citing an erroneous Bible quote fully miss the point. Editors would fact-check any quote in a textbook, especially one that appears on the first page, as would have Baudrillard himself. So it's obvious that he put this falsely attributed quote at the opening of his book on purpose. The quote and its source are a simulation, and the subtle type of simulation of which Baudrillard concerns himself and the reader within this very book. And it isn't just a fake quote, but a quote which nonetheless does an excellent job of summarizing the text or at least one idea the text presents, so in this way it serves a valid function. This is more subtlety, it's very clever. Anyone who discounts the entirety of simulacra and simulation based on the discovery that this opening quote is incorrect is probably also a diehard UFO skeptic, just saying. In the process of providing at least a broad summary of his book and its ideas, let's start with a passage. Baudrillard writes, Today, abstraction is no longer that of the map, the double, the mirror, or the concept. Simulation is no longer that of the territory, a referential being, or a substance it is the generation by models of a real without original, or reality, a hyper-real. Now the simulations Baudrillard refers to are the symbolisms of culture and media that construct our perceived reality. They are the acquired understanding by which our lives and shared experiences are rendered legible. Baudrillard contends that society has become so saturated with these simulacra that all meaning has become meaningless because it is so infinitely mutable and malleable. As a way to explain how we got to this point, Baudrillard gives us what he defines as the four stages of sign order, or the order of symbols. The first stage is a faithful copy where we believe, and may be correct to believe, that this copy is a reflection or meant to be a reflection of a profound reality. So like a realistic painting of a tree in a meadow. Let's be specific and say a coconut tree. And language exists here as well, so the very word coconut tree is a symbol society uses to reflect a certain reality. The word coconut tree is not a coconut tree, but when I say it, At least in some degree, you know what I mean. The second stage of sign order is a perversion of reality where we come to believe the symbol to be an unfaithful copy that masks reality as an evil appearance or illusion. Here, signs and images do not reveal reality or point to it. But hint at some obscure reality that the sign or symbol itself is incapable of encapsulating. So, like the statue of a god, complete with symbolism of the powers that God represents in nature, and we know the statue is not a portrait of, say, Zeus, but that it is a personification of the powers of lightning, procreation, and whatever Zeus rules over or stands for in society. The third stage of sign order fully masks the absence of reality and pretends to be a faithful copy, but this is a copy with no original. This is what Baudrillard calls the order of sorcery, where symbols and imagery are conjured artificially to appear as reference. A deep fake personality that has a Facebook page might be an example of this. The fourth stage of sign order is pure simulacrum. In this stage, the simulation has no relationship to any reality whatsoever, and the signs and symbols only reflect other signs and symbols. This builds to a regime of total equivalency where cultural products need no longer even pretend to be real in a naive sense, because the experiences of those in the society are so predominantly artificial that even claims to reality are phrased in artificial terms. This is what Baudrillard calls hyper-real. And so finally any pretension to reality is perceived as lacking any critical self-awareness and is viewed as overly sentimental. Now don't worry if this seems dense and difficult to understand, it is, and there really is no easy way to digest it quickly so hang in there, turn on the lava lamp, and get ready to have your mind blown but don't worry. We'll stick together through this and I promise I'll bring you back to Earth by the end, or at least I'll try to. Now, in addition to those four stages of sign order, Baudrillard also gives us three types of simulacra. He aligns each of these types with their historical period. And this really is his way of trying to help us follow him into a place where we can digest the rest of what he's trying to get at here. The three types of simulacra are first order simulacra. These are associated with the pre-modern world where representation is clearly a place marker for the real item. The uniqueness of objects and situations makes them irreproducibly real, and any representation of these objects obviously tries to render a clear idea of what it represents. But it doesn't try to be the thing itself. So at this time, say in pre-Victorian England, A carpenter who makes tables might have a sign outside of his shop with a painting of a table on it. The painting of the table isn't meant to eat on, it is a clear symbol or a simulacrum of the real tables the man makes in his shop. Some shops may have even hung a small table high up on the wall above their door just to get the point across. In that case, the carpenter would have made that tiny table as a simulation of the functional tables he makes for a living, and the small symbolic table would still have been that unique object that is irreproducibly real, in a way at least. It isn't really what he makes, but it's a symbol of what he makes. I use this example because it helps clarify the next order. The second order simulacra comes to us with the industrial revolution and more modern times to give us a situation where the distinctions between presentation and reality break down because of the advent of mass-produced copies. This is the era of the commodity. According to Baudrillard, the mass-produced item threatens to replace the authority of the original version, because the copy is just as real as the original. A run of published books, for example. The third book printed is exactly the same as the 800th book printed, so the last one is the same as the first one. That irreproducibility of the original is now gone. The Third Order Simulacra is where we find ourselves now, the world of postmodernity, where simulacrum precedes any original, and the distinction between the representation and the reality vanishes. There is only the simulation and originality is a meaningless concept. The copy becomes more important because it is the only importance. Example, 5,000 people at a rock concert, no one watching it, everyone filming it, because the copy is more important than the original. Another example, two people having dinner across a table from each other, both staring at their phone screens. And here is my caution about this material. Baudrillard's pure simulacra isn't, strictly speaking, a merely technological predicament. Technology is part of it, yes, because he's dealing with our current, or at least recent, times. But he isn't really vilifying technology in general, which is a mistake many people make when they glance at what he's saying. So, that is the overall premise of what Baudrillard is trying to get across. As a society, we begin to use language and symbols to refer to the natural or the real world around us. We advanced this project into using those symbols to define our experiences. Once we had created a sufficient library of symbols, we started to use new symbols to refer to the older symbols, and we left nature and the pure real to its own devices, or to be harvested to make more signs. Then, as we expanded our ability to manufacture things, the copying of originals rendered the originals no more valuable than the copies because they are now essentially all the same. And if we, as a society and a modern culture, had stopped there and all taken notice of the situation, then we may have had a laugh and made some distinctions for ourselves that would celebrate the diversity of those things that are still different in the world. But an argument could be made that the production and consumption of these symbols, signs, and simulations has increased past a point of critical mass and that, as a society, we now find ourselves in a world of simulation. Not the computer-generated dream world of the Matrix movies. But a world where all of our communications, ideas, and thoughts have been reduced to sound bites that reference other sound bites, and so we swirl in a never ending echo chamber of movie quotes, political slogans, clever newscaster alliterations, and a tautology of definitions only propped up by other definitions where everything has a meaning to such an obscene point that all meaning is rendered meaningless. Now that may sound hopeless, but don't start skipping with the 15 second forward button just quite yet, and if you're still here after all that then rock on because there is really cool territory ahead. We will get into some really cool examples of what Baudrillard is talking about, and those real world examples start to really blow the mind. We just have to establish the framework here because this stuff is, I will just say it, it's crazy, but crazy in a good way. It's deep beyond deep. These are probably some of the most twisted concepts I've ever read and much of the reason is because we are analyzing thoughts and ideas with thoughts and ideas, and so you see how quickly it gets weird. But we like weird around here, so let's press on. How can we bring some of these concepts down to earth where we can understand how they might impact us and learn from the dangers of homogeny that a never-ending system of simulation built on simulation drives toward? I would say by looking at the manifestations of that system within the institutions we have in our society at the present. These are the same institutions that were current when Baudrillard wrote Simulacra and Simulation. The media. Welcome, Neo, to the real world. So, Baudrillard brings the historical, sociological project of the sign, the symbol, and the simulation right into our present day, and we find ourselves confronting that Leviathan of all free thinkers, the mainstream media. Dun dun dun. Most of this I'll paraphrase from the text of the book and tune it with my own interpretations and just as a disclaimer I am far from a Baudrillard expert I am NOT a philosophy student I'm just someone interested in the concepts so what does Baudrillard have to say about our modern mainstream media simulacra and simulation tells us that the media does not give us information but rather interrogation where the answer is always given in the question. The media gives us referendum and circular response. And the media faithful, the believers in media, repeat those responses among each other to engage in a simulation of conversation, not a conversation based on experience or even actual understanding but a simulated conversation based on yet another simulation of reality which is the media's version of the world itself. When we move deeper into Baudrillard's assessment of information as a whole, this is the dissemination of information by both corporate media monopolies and individuals through social media which is just a tool given to them by those same corporate media machines, big data and at the same time sanitized and censored by them, what we arrive at, and Baudrillard believes we have arrived there already, is a point of what he calls escape velocity. This is a term he first used in Illusion of the End. Escape velocity occurs when the machines of information delivery take communication and real dialogue beyond its limits to a point where, now and beyond, there is no end. So as for how much information is generated and broadcast, it simply increases constantly. No new limit is created and stopped upon. So having arrived at information escape velocity, we find ourselves on a steady course of perpetual increases in amounts and speeds of information both constantly accelerating into infinity. It's hard to fully grasp exactly what that looks like, but I think we can all agree that we are there now. Moreover, what does this look like in 10, 20, or 50 years? It already boggles the mind today. We are well into what Alvin Toffler called Future Shock in his 1970 book of that same name, it is truly a shock for anyone who really tries to look into the information available even in one genre like say sports or news or music even just rap music or classical music you could never know it all you could never hear it all it's as one early critic of google said like drinking water from a fire hose So you could never know all of the information available on even the most focused niche. And as far as information as a whole, forget it. This approaches or has already accomplished the absurd. One way to comprehend the absurdity of information at escape velocity is the analog of inflation because we can at least give that a number. And I'm speaking of inflation in our current modern western state. Inflation like information has entered escape velocity. We have crossed a point of critical mass where prices will never stop increasing. At the same time there is an inverse perversion where quantities or amounts of goods continually shrink. This is now called shrinkflation. The largest bag of potato chips used to be 20 ounces, then it was 18 ounces. Now it's 16 ounces of potato chips inside. A can of shaving cream used to hold 11 ounces. Now it holds 10. Same sized can. The size and shape of potato chip bags is also the same, but the price climbs ever higher. And the amount of food, if you can call it food, inside, shrinks continually. So the rational mind realizes this and wonders, will there ever be a time when a large bag of potato chips contains one potato chip? And will it cost $1,400? Will our great-grandchildren pay $75,000 for a pair of everyday sneakers? And so Baudrillard's conclusion is that this same situation with information a never-ending escalation in the amounts and speed and reach of information creates a world a social world where every occurrence is given a meaning a political position a judgment all to a point where the summation of all media information is meaningless the elaborate modern machine of information never gives us information but exhausts itself with the staging of information it never provides us with any meaning but it exhausts itself in the staging of meaning one example of how a pure inundation of information reaches an apex of meaningless noise is what i am calling the butter paradox you heard it here first Example of the butter paradox For a brief moment the news will report that butter is bad for you It raises cholesterol Causes heart disease Is responsible for obesity and all manner of illness They cite a university study and deliver the news with grim concern for your well-being People who act on this information, who internalize it replace the butter in their diets and in their very lives with a multitude of butter simulations margarine, pam, coconut oil, what have you, which it then turns out are even worse for your body than actual butter. Several months later, those same talking heads do an equally impassioned report on the dangers of butter substitutes. This report sings the praises of natural butter and cites a new university or laboratory study. And around and around it goes. Every year or so, butter, according to the mass media, alternates from poison to health food and back to poison. The Butter Paradox After a few rounds of this cycle, consumers who have been seeing both sides over and over now view the current information as utterly meaningless. No pun intended. The point is that both studies may be valid. Butter may very well possess both positive and negative nutritional qualities. Many things do. Orange juice provides a high amount of vitamin C and other vitamins, minerals, hydration, and energy, so those things are good for you. But orange juice also has a high glycemic index due to its high ratio of sugar to fiber, so it fuels the body with simple carbohydrates which stimulates the storage of fat, and those things can be bad for you, but they can be good in some situations. Both facts are true, but media seldom presents two sides of any story they present one side as the only moral choice in order to cultivate division. Why? Because a divided population can be controlled. Divide and conquer is an axiom for a reason. And along what human responses are we being divided? Our emotions. A complete and impartial presentation of facts engages the intellect and lets people form their own conclusions. A divisive, one-sided moral plea forces you to choose a side to be against which draws upon your emotions. Politics in America has been systematically shifted from an intellectual game to an emotional game. Why? to accomplish the goal of division. This is why people get so worked up about sports. They love their team, and they hate the other team, even though they themselves are on neither team in any way whatsoever. In this way, the sports team or the politician one chooses becomes like the Buddhist concept of the Ishta devata the wished-for deity, where the worshipper realizes intellectually that all life is the same life, so they purposefully assign identity to a segment or energy outside of themselves in order to have something to worship. Today, these are our pop stars, our quarterbacks, our Kardashians driven by an escalating, overwhelming flood of information built with cultural symbols and signs, each simulating an imagined reality and in such lengthy procession that our new and most critical symbols no longer even pretend to represent any objective reality, but rather only represent previous symbols which in turn were symbolic of other symbols so that we enter into Baudrillard's third order of simulacra, where all ideas are sound bites of someone else's ideas, all of our favorite pictures are photos from someone else's Instagram feed, and all movies are remakes of other movies. Not even other movies, but remakes of the same movie. The New Italian Job. The New Jumanji the new Aladdin, the new Lion King, the new Ghostbusters, the new new Ghostbusters, and each time a little more sanitized, a little more inclusive, a little less original, like a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy that becomes so faint that it's rendered unintelligible, blank white paper. When everything is a copy of a copy to the point that all things are blank, then all things are meaningless. When every movie is the same movie, then every movie is pointless. When everything is categorized, divided, named, and given a meaning, and all those meanings are told to you, and nothing is ever asked of you, and your acceptance of all meaning is a referendum and moral imperative, whose only existence is your acknowledgement to infinity, then there is no contrast or opposition remaining upon which to stand without trampling yet another tribal definition. At this point, the recognition of any single meaning becomes impossible and the summation of all is the blank page of nothing, TV static, the hum of a fan, As negative as this inevitable conclusion of the fully insane proliferation of information sounds, it is not a despair, but a triumph. Stick with me, because we are so close to clearing this up. Baudrillard's simulation is not in opposition to reality, it is an inextricable part of reality. For Baudrillard, it is illusion that is in opposition to reality. Baudrillard's simulation is not an oppressive phenomenon, although the results of its blind worship become circular. For example, the origins of simulation lie in language where society agrees on abstractions of sound and writing to communicate ideas. The problem comes when society builds such an elaborate system of simulations, signs and symbols that those symbols no longer represent reality but other symbols and we arrive at Baudrillard's hyper-reality. It is this hyper-reality which is oppressive because it drives toward a homogenization of definitions and perceptions. To quote Baudrillard, By crossing into a space whose curvature is no longer that of the real, but that of truth, the era of simulation is inaugurated by a liquidation of all referentials. Worse, with their artificial resurrection in a system of signs, a material more malleable than meaning, that it lends itself to all systems of equivalences, to all binary oppositions, to all culminatory contours. See, I told you we'd clear it up. Jeez. Okay, so yes, this is very difficult to digest, but what he is saying is that truth implies true and false. So, division. And that division, when paired with a liquidation of reference, then instilled with moral imperative, leads to a state where every difference vanishes. It is this vanishing of differences that Baudrillard finds, to finally say something simply, bad. This is a seriously dense concept, but not beyond digestible summary, so let's try when society builds a construct of communication where symbols no longer represent reality but other symbols, the resulting hyper-reality lends itself to endless dichotomy where all things are either true-false, good-bad, Republican-Democrat, criminal-victim, to infinity, to a staggering degree, until everything is only understood by its opposition, and at this conclusion, become each other, implode, and render all and anything the same thing, and become, therefore, bereft of meaning. A place where all things are forced into their image. So, an example would be nature, when, in its broadest term, is forced into our image of nature. To such a degree that people align on one side of it, say, conservationalists. This alignment reaches a point where nature ceases to exist when all of that which we define as such is quarantined into nature preserves, fenced off and designated by a signpost, which is in fact a decidedly unnatural way for wilderness to exist. At this point, nature becomes a simulation. A specific example from my local area is the Environmental Learning Center. This is a collection of buildings and parking lots built upon what was previously virgin mangrove swamp along the Indian River Lagoon. You can go to the Environmental Learning Center, park in a paved parking lot, go inside a building, and look at pictures of the vanishing mangrove swamp habitats, complete with compelling text about how crucial those habitats are to our ecosystem. We bring kids there, show them those pictures, and tell them that's what a mangrove swamp looks like. We tell them how bad it is to destroy it from a commercial development that has directly destroyed it to exist. It is the simulation of the terrain we give priority to. And I know they take kids out in boats and show them real mangroves and they probably do great things, but that is not the point. We tear down nature and pave it to build a building to house a picture of that vanishing nature. And once again, this is not to say that the Environmental Learning Center accomplishes no good. I'm sure they do. But even if they single-handedly saved the entire planet, no one can say they did not destroy native habitat to build those buildings and parking lots. They did. In doing so, they replaced reality with a simulation of reality. So Baudrillard says that such situations of simulation replacing reality exist to help convince us that the reality they portend to simulate or stand in contrast to has not been lost. Now, on the surface, this seems simplistic, but not so much. The example Baudrillard provides is Disneyland. What he proposes is this. Why does Disneyland exist? For the same reasons those other models of simulation exist. To convince us that America itself is not a cartoon. We create Disneyland so we can say, Inside Disneyland is where the imagination lives. That is where fiction is everything outside of Disneyland is real, when in fact, to Baudrillard at least, America and its entire socio-political media information collective is a fiction, a cartoon, a caricature of itself. To quote Baudrillard, Disneyland is presented as imaginary to make us believe that the rest is real whereas all of L.A. and the America that surrounds it are no longer real, but belong to the hyperreal order, the order of simulation. So in the broad picture, it is the complex of the information machines that become powerful and at the same time are the tools of those in power. Why does power create these hyperreal simulations then? Again, Baudrillard. Power does this to persuade us of the reality of the social, of the gravity of the economy, and of the finalities of production, so we do not lose faith in such institutions because so much is held up by them. Another example is that of the original Watergate scandal, wherein people working to re-elect President Nixon broke into the opposing political party's headquarters to steal documents or plant documents. If this happened today, it would be a two-minute news clip. But in this example, Watergate was positioned by the media as being a symbol for political corruption the inference being that everything else in politics at the time that was not Watergate was honest, genuine, and pure. As time passed, every new political debacle has been cast as the same symbol for corruption to delineate it from the altruistic rest of the political world, and as such, these new symbols are given the suffix gate. So, Iran-Contra-gate, Whitewater-gate... Deflategate, these are symbols of political corruption that refer back to a previous symbol of political corruption to the point where there are now people alive who will tweet all day about Apple's chip gate without any knowledge of Watergate or what happened to Nixon as a result. This is an example of communication implosion by simulation upon simulation. We can also look at the art of Andy Warhol know that Baudrillard was a huge Warhol fan. So if the first order of symbology is our concept and language for, say, a tree, and the second order of simulation might be a chair made from a tree, the third order then could be a painting of a chair. Following this procession, Warhol then extends into the fourth stage of simulation, into pure simulacra, when he paints a Campbell's soup can. And he doesn't even really paint it. He uses the industrial replication process of silk screening to print it. So to follow Baudrillard's code, we have a tomato. Then we have our word tomato. Then an actual can of tomato soup is produced. This is a simulation of picking and stewing your own tomatoes. Then Warhol's painting of a soup can becomes a simulation of that simulation. This is merely a jumping off point to attempt to understand Baudrillard's assessment of Warhol. Essentially, Baudrillard says that Warhol fetishizes the common object, reduces it to an image of itself. Warhol gives up the autonomy of the artist and he becomes the machine of communication, or at least a part of that machine. Warhol aims the tools of mass production back at the products of mass production. To create a singularly unique work of art that is removed from the mundane world of replication. But only by replicating not the reality of the objects themselves, but by replicating their images. At the same time, gone is the skill of rendering, and all that remains is the idea and action of reductionism. The artifacts of which are merely reflections of objects the image stolen from its purpose to exist as an icon of itself. In light of this, Baudrillard dismisses McLuhan's notion that the medium is the message, because we can no longer define messages as being from any one medium, such as TV or a magazine. Anyone remember what a magazine is? Everywhere is the medium, and every image and sound is the message. It is a total bombardment of images, ideas, and positions. Everything now exists in support of the proliferation of these images. The medium is the message may once have been true, when there were discrete media, but Baudrillard says quote, there is no longer a medium in the literal sense. It is now intangible diffused and refracted in the real and one can no longer even say that the medium is altered by it. So ultimately hyperreality of this kind drives toward an existence of equivalence, the eradication of opposition. An example Baudrillard gives is nuclear war, where weapons cease to be tools of opposition due to mutually assured destruction and therefore become symbols of a power that is a pretext to installing a global security system which ultimately results in the extinguishment of differences. So, one world, one government, one language, one ideology. All terrible ideas to Baudrillard. As he says, The balance of terror is the terror of balance. So, homogeny. This becomes Baudrillard's foundation for his controversial, in his own words, analysis of the Vietnam War, which is that the US pulled out of Vietnam but won the war. This is very touchy ground here, but what he means is that it wasn't really totalitarian communism versus free market democracy that the US was concerned with or fighting for in Vietnam. It was South Vietnam's recognition of and participation in either or. Baudrillard says of this, quote, as soon as the Vietnamese had proved that they were no longer the carriers of an unpredictable subversion, one could let them take over. By recognizing the army of the North Vietnamese and formally opposing it, the rest of Vietnam joined the system, which is all the US wanted and it doesn't matter which side wins in the end as long as everyone involved is at least on one side or the other. And remember, this is not necessarily my opinion but that of Baudrillard. He does go on to say that Vietnam was a real conflict and there was real damage and danger and hardship and all the other ills of war. But it's interesting when we view all of these real world examples through the lens of Baudrillard's simulation observations and as if it hasn't been crazy enough, this gets bananas, so let's go deeper. Back to this notion of pure simulacra where information reaches a point of obscenity so that more information keeps getting created for no reason other than to create more information, that escape velocity we talked about earlier, we find that communication, that is, actual dialogue and exchange of ideas between people, is destroyed by the very proliferation of the modes of communication. An absolutely perfect example of this is society's communication step backward from full duplex telephone conversation into the archaic, half-duplex telegram functionality of the text message we now chiefly use the ubiquitous and supremely inferior text message, that is, inferior as far as accurate, subtle, and effective communication goes. Regardless of what someone's preference is, the subtle inflection, tone, speed, two-way immediacy, and nuanced responses of an audio-telephone conversation far outperform the clunky, easily misunderstood and static text message. Emojis and various semantic text tricks are dreary attempts to reconcile this. Thereby, we now enter a situation where, because of the ubiquity of communication options, devices, and advancement, true communication suffers to the point where people no longer possess the ability to hold an effective telephone conversation. And ultimately faces and screens, an effective interpersonal conversation. Simulations of conversations have been built upon simulations of communication to the point where we are left with only the simulations and our communication technology has advanced to obliterate any actual communication. As Baudrillard states, quote, Information devours its own content. It devours communication in the social. Behind this exacerbated stage show of communication is the mass media. The pressure of information pursues an irresistible destructuration of the social. This information dissolves meaning and dissolves the social into a sort of nebulous state dedicated not to a surplus of information, but on the contrary, to total entropy. End quote. Are we having fun yet? Okay, not to fear. There are ways to escape from this dearth of real communication, or lack of real content. But those ways become increasingly individualistic. These kinds of modern nomad culture, alternative occupations, entrepreneurialisms, ...are all examples of people escaping from the false circle of non-communication within the social. But these endeavors still operate within that same system they seek to oppose or to escape. And once again, the success of the attempt becomes an individual thing. Decentralized. If we remember the original meaning of media... ...as being a mediating entity between the reality of an event or circumstance and the consumption of that event, the learning of it, then Baudrillard's claim that there is no longer a media or that type of media. The dissolution of the media is the message simultaneously destroys both the message and the media. the result of this implosion is the creation of organizations which both constantly expand to include more perspectives and simultaneously attempt to oppose those systems that threaten them with the tools that support that very system one example is the way that we as a society keep adding letters to the lgbtq community The bigger it gets, the more tribalistic it becomes within, and the more its intention of inclusion grows, the more this results in division. So the heterosexual couple with two kids, a dog, and a house in the suburbs is not the enemy of the LGBTQ community. Both can exist harmoniously and, in fact, are quite capable of supporting and affirming each other. The only place where these two communities are actually at opposition is in the divisive mass media, where all things are forced to choose a side, and all reality of experience is forced into the symbol of its image. But when every side is simultaneously at war with every other side, there is no longer an actual war, there is just noise. Be open minded let other people be themselves and don't believe the hype now this notion of perpetually being cast into roles of choosing an imaginary side then attempting to push against the other side is a classic manifestation of what Baudrillard is trying to convey here that when everything is labeled and codified there is no reality left He doesn't mean there is no world or no life, he just means don't confuse the construct for that world or your life. Don't fall for the hyperreal illusion psyop. Have you ever heard someone say, man the world is so messed up now? Exactly what world is it they are referring to? Without fail, it is the world described to them by the mass media. Very rarely are they conveying an instance of personal experience. They are providing you with their simulation, a verbal one, based on the media's one-sided simulation of lack and destruction. Let's look at one last example. Hey, no cheering. Of how the false division, inundation of information, and obliteration of reality has reared its head some time ago an environmentalist group organized a protest against a specific location of offshore oil drilling or the offshore oil drilling industry in general. That protest consisted of hundreds of activists paddling out to surround an offshore oil rig in kayaks to make their statement. The irony being that each of those hundreds of kayaks are made from plastic derived directly from the oil industry. So hundreds of people buying kayaks to protest an oil rig directly puts thousands of dollars, if not more, into the bank accounts of exactly those same oil companies. Now, this is an absolute, undeniable accomplishment of the protest, or at least of the purchasing decisions of the protesters previous to the protest or otherwise, and the goal of the protest, the almost now cliched raising of awareness, becomes a meme that people glance at in passing, at best, and take no action because of, wholesale. So there is no ground outside of that system to really stand upon and the protest against it finances rather than impedes it. This isn't a moral judgement on my part for or against fossil fuels, or kayaks for that matter. It is simply an illustration of the circular mechanisms of information, communication, and the effectiveness of division when that division becomes so widespread that everything is against everything else, and the simulations you build to oppose your enemies are constructed with the simulations that enemy has developed and sold to you. So we have the anti-oil protesters in their petroleum-based boats, Or the college kids standing in Nikes, cozy in their North Face hoodies, using their iPhones to go onto Twitter and rant against capitalism. Or me using Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google to warn of the dangers of big data. So it isn't that there is no way to challenge these entrenched systems, but that when doing so, we must be aware of the degrees to which our attempts to condemn such systems directly benefit them. This is shaky ground because our modes of communication are so imploded, as Baudrillard puts it, the medium and the real are now a singular nebula whose truth is indecipherable. In this way, the media has come to occupy the role of the masses. Baudrillard calls this a paradox in the inextricable conjunction of the masses and the media. He asks, Do the media neutralize meaning and produce uninformed or ill-informed masses? Or is it the masses who victoriously resist the media by directing or absorbing all the messages the media produce? without responding to them. Previously, that is before writing Simulacra and Simulation, Baudrillard condemned the media as the institution of an irreversible model of communication without response. But today, this absence of a response can no longer be understood at all as a strategy of power, but as a counter-strategy of the masses themselves as they encounter power. Are the mass media on the side of power in the manipulation of the masses, or are the mass media on the side of the masses in the liquidation of meaning? If we have moved into the stages of the latter, then what we are seeing are the last gasps of power to affirm its own existence. And since power relies so heavily on its monopolization of meaning, so the news tells you what's dangerous, the news tells you what's wrong, they tell you what's vilified, then what we see is the frantic endeavors of those in power, and the power structure as a whole, to convince the masses that it, that is the machine of power, holds every answer and that machine alone can provide, explain, and clarify all meaning. When the masses make nothing of that meaning, when they fully ignore it, we see the withering away of power, or at least of its effectiveness. As meaning and its progenitor power wane, communication for political purposes also wanes, as does advertising for the pure promotion of commerce. As this happens, the masses evolve from incessantly repeating through consumption the phrases I buy, I consume, I take pleasure, into today when those phrases repeat in other forms. I vote, I participate. I am concerned. Such statements are, as Baudrillard puts it, the mirror of a paradoxical mockery, the mirror of the indifference of all public signification. So this results from building a communication society of symbols based on symbols to a point where the symbolic is treasured over the reality. Someone saying, I am bleeding with concern. But never doing anything is more important than the smallest action of kindness. And so we end up in a situation where the media no longer tries to convince us of any reality, but rather of the symbolic that rules it. Specifically, the media no longer tries to convince us that we have a functioning political system. They now only insist that we have a moral imperative to believe that we do. We must believe in our democracy. We must believe in the science. We must believe in humanity. This leaves those who participate in media consumption stranded in what Baudrillard calls an exacerbated redundancy, a soundbite echo chamber that accomplishes nothing and elicits no action But in doing so, fully accomplishes its overall goal of instilling non-action, in cultivating apathy. So weaving this back into the general premise of Simulacra and Simulation, the book, we as a society have been pushed into the realm of pure Simulacra by the proliferation of mass media, social media, communication devices, and the convergence of all of these. They have hijacked our historical symbols of reality to create a circular recognition of a socio-political economic world where all instances are categorized into their own image. And these images become our experiences at such an increasing rate that no meaning survives. To push against it is to prop it up. To ignore it is the apathy it seeks from you. But as much as this may sound hopeless, it really isn't. Remember, this is no more than an analysis of the world of symbols, signs, simulations, and language, using only the tools we have to analyze such things, which just happen to be those very symbols, signs, simulation, and language. This is a fun exercise to remind us that the rules of grammar are not the rules of the experience of life. The circular natures of these ideas are to use two more Buddhist metaphors like searching for a donkey while riding one like beating a drum in search of a fugitive Baudrillard himself acknowledges this many times he admits that we may never fully grasp the answers to the questions he poses I truly appreciate you coming this far down deep into this subject I loved working on it and presenting it here for you Baudrillard is dense, and these ideas require stretching our mind to even begin to think among the dark trails he has cut through the jungles of our modern world. I have decided to end this episode with a story from a most amazing graphic novel, Robota, by Doug Chang and Orson Scott Card. Check it out. Here is the story. There is a story among the robots of a human puppeteer who made a doll so lifelike that he treated it as his own daughter. He dressed her in the finest clothing he could afford to buy and amassed such a dowry for her that there were many suitors who wanted the hand of this daughter in marriage. He granted the petition of one man, a very wealthy one, who took home the girl of wood and upholstery and seated her upon furniture made of the same stuff as she. The doting father visited her every day, and all went well enough. Worms got to her, though, and mildew, and all the rots and frays that organic life is prone to. At last, on one of his visits, the father came weeping to his son-in-law and told him that his daughter wanted to come home to die. The son-in-law joined him in grieving and together they carried the girl back to the house where she had been carved and jointed and stitched and stuffed. There the father nursed her, yet still she ailed until one day he pronounced her dead and burned her body on a pyre. Her widower came and wept and when the fire had spent itself he asked for her ashes and took them to his ancestral crypt spreading them among the ashes of his ancestors and engraving her name upon the lintel stone beside the space where one day his own name would be carved. The father loved his son-in-law then for the honor he gave the daughter and his heart, and when he died he left all his fortune to his son-in-law, along with the secret of how to make a puppet live. The robots tell this story as a jest. For them, the wooden puppet girl is more alive than the father or the husband, for anything that dies after so brief a span cannot truly be said to have ever been alive. Humans learned this story from the robots, and they told it in their secret caves and hiding places. For centuries they told the tale, for to them it told a great poetic truth, that no device made by human hands is ever truly alive, And to treat it as if it lives is only sentimentality, or madness, or in the end, despair. And if there was a time when humans thought they were happy living among their robot conquerors, it was out of madness. When the machine rules over the maker of machines, who then is the tool? Files by going to patreon.com renegadefiles and joining the Renegade Files agency for just a few bucks. And in return, you get tons of extra Renegade Files content and other rewards like a t-shirt or episode shout out, depending on the level of support. Supporting the show on Patreon helps keep it free and ad-free, and it lets me create these episodes for you independently. So Thanks. I'm your host, Lex Gordon. Stay wild, heathen child.